so many books, so little time. If you've ever said, I really want to read the Bible, I just can't fit it all in. Welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. This is the Bible Book Club. We'll read it to you and help you make sense of the most important book you'll ever read. Jacob wrestles with relationships, and don't you know, wrestling with relationships usually doesn't turn out so great. (laughs) I don't know about you, if you've ever wrestled in a relationship, it's not so much fun. (laughs) But it's something we're going to learn from Jacob. Yeah, and that's one good thing about Jacob is that he does learn as he goes, and and just like his father Isaac before him, they learn from their mistakes, and then in the end of their life, they're making much better decisions than they were in the beginning. Like we do. It's called wisdom. (laughs) And and so. Let's try to learn from these poor characters in our story before we have to learn the lessons for ourselves. Exactly. (laughs) So last episode, chapter 30 and 31, Jacob and Laban battle for, for control. Laban's loss is Jacob's gain. God wins the battle on behalf of Jacob. And then God tells Jacob, go home. And he tells Laban to just be be quiet. quiet. (laughs) Which Laban doesn't do. No, Laban doesn't. Laban doesn't listen to anything that God tells him to do, which is another story. So this week, we're going to cover chapter 32 and 33. Now that God has molded Jacob into the man of faith he needs him to be to lead a nation, the focus is going to turn to his family. His sons are the future of the promised nation. However, every family is made up of relationships and relationships are an important part of our calling. Jacob has and will wrestle with relationships in almost every single chapter. It is a reoccurring theme for him. In Genesis 25 through 28, he wrestled with his brother Esau. In 29, he wrestled with his wives. Well, I don't know how you have four wives and don't have some kind of wrestling. In 30 and 31, he wrestles with his father-in-law Laban. Today, he will wrestle with reconciliation with Esau and he will wrestle for control with God. In future chapters, he's going to wrestle with his sons and the sin that gets in the way of his relationships with them. Favoritism, envy, hatred, deception, and even human trafficking are going to be a part of the story he has with his sons. God built this nation and our world around people and relationships, and we must wrestle to get them right. All right, so here's our scene. Jacob has just left this intense face-off with his father-in-law. And it was intense. He didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know if his father-in-law was going to bring an army of people. Where he finally broke free from the tenacious hold Laban had in his family. So he faced this face-off. He is broken free. God, only because God intervened, of course. Now, he is marching his family, utterly defenseless, right into the camp of his brother. He has no protection. He doesn't even know if his parents are alive to receive strain Esau, he must assume that if his parents are not alive, that his brother has taken control over his father's vast empire, an empire and birthright that although he gained wrongfully, technically belonged to him. Yeah, because remember, he sold it to him for the stew. He bought that birthright and he doesn't have an army. He has a lot of flocks. He has a lot of shepherds. He has a lot of family. So he's basically going back to get what's rightfully his. He's going back to home and who knows what he's walking into. So this is far from an ideal situation to go home to. However, angels protectively paved the way for him in chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahalim. <laughs> 
<laughs> the Jewish girl comes out in me. Okay, Mahanaim means two camps. Jacob is comparing his defenseless camp, his children, his family, his flocks, and the camp of angels protecting him. Jacob has come full circle. In chapter 28, on his journey to Padan Aran 20 years ago, Jacob was encouraged by God with a vision of angels on a stairway to heaven, remember? So he had a vision going there, and now he's got a vision on the way back home. He is once again encouraged by God with this vision of angels. This vision's kind of book ends his exile from home. Don't you just want to get talked to by angels as much as they do. I really do. It would really help me a lot to be convicted of what I must do. This vision may have been a similar experience as Elijah's that we will get to one day in 2 Kings 6. His eyes were open to the presence of an army of angels surrounding them and protecting them. And that's kind of what Jacob takes away from this too. Oh my gosh, I thought we were alone here facing Esau, but look, his eyes are open and he sees this camp. What we can learn from Jacob's vision of two angels is this. Angels meet us where, when, and how we need them. Angels meet us where we are because God knows knows our journey and he will meet us on the road. Angels meet us when we need them because God knows when we, like Jacob, are defensive. And angels meet us how we need at the time. In Jacob's first vision, the angels were messengers. In this vision, the angels are warriors. The point is when God calls you to impossible works or trials like he is here, Jacob, he will prepare and protect you in mysterious ways. Have you ever had something unexplainable happen to you when you were in the middle of a trial. We talked last last week about your journey and your your adoption journey. So was there ever any kind of unexplainable thing that you think maybe angels were visiting you at that time? I'll tell you the mo- the greatest confidence and comfort I've gotten that I know is of the Lord and not of me is probably with all my heart struggles. I've had two card almost three cardiac arrests. I've had, I had my first cardiac arrest at 17. So I just have this heart that has electrical problems and they're constantly tinkering with it. So I've had a lot of surgeries and I I really don't stress about them. My husband stresses more than I do, but I kind of felt like the Lord. I met the Lord on that first one when I was 17. And I kind of have this comfort knowing that whatever my heart does, um, God's in control and he's going to either bring me. I always think before I go into surgery or whatever, okay, what, where have I been? Where am I now? If I come out of the surgery, where will I be? What do you want me to do, God? If, if you bring me through it, uh, will what more will you have me do? And so I, I I really feel that's the Holy Spirit giving me a peace about my life and otherwise I would be constantly afraid. And and that is my tendency to more be afraid. So I know that's the Lord. So it wasn't like men with big like no no <laughs> wings of feathers. <laughs> my eyes are not No, it's a it's an unexplainable peace. Yeah. And that's how you know there's angels with you. And that's how I know that yes whether it's an angel or the Holy Spirit is this is the cross that I have to bear and God is going to see me through it until one day when my heart doesn't. I don't wake up from the surgery and then I'm going to be in heaven. It's all going to be great. Okay, despite seeing this camp, Jacob still approaches with fear. So again, he sees it. He's excited about it. He says, wow, I'm going to name this place Camp of God because you know he sees this, this other camp there that's protecting them, but he still approaches with fear. Verse three, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my 
my Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. In other words, he's saying, don't kill me. I have my own stuff and I'm not coming to take anything else from you. Like I took the birthright and the blessing. I'm not going to take anything else. I'm a changed man. Welcome me back. I can support myself and my family. Yeah. I'm not going to be bleeding you. All right. Verse six. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. Well, no wonder Jacob is approaching (laughs) with fear. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups and the flocks and the herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Okay, Jacob prepares in fear and distress. Oh, I don't blame him. I mean, he's he had smart. every reason to fear, but you can just see his mind going from, oh gosh, I have a camp of angels around me too. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? Strategy kicking in. Contingency and he plan. He is a great strategist. Jacob was not traveling about with an army as Abraham and Isaac did. He has a large family and great herds, but no protection. Esau sent word of 400 people. Sounds bad. I would have done the same thing. I wonder though, if Esau didn't send a note on purpose, was he enjoying tormenting Jacob just a little? Oh, he's had 20 years to (laughs) think about what he stole from him. Yes. So I just have to wonder, because normally polite conversation would have been, or the polite thing to do would have been to write a note back. I'm so glad you're coming home. I will be happy to see you. I I will come to meet you in peace. Instead, he just sends out 400 men. It looks bad. Now, also, Jacob probably feels guilty about how he behaved when he last saw Esau, and he knows that he deserves this treatment and expects Esau to take revenge. So he's not surprised. It also speaks to the fact that he had so many things that dividing them in two would still be a camp that would be able to prosper. Yes. Jacob is wealthy. So, however, Jacob shouldn't have responded in fear because he's had all this visible encouragement from God. He had the vision of the angels protecting him, but his failure to trust fueled his fear. And this gets back to the trust thing with him. He fights for control because he does not trust. With Laban, that's okay. There was no reason to trust Laban. So you need to fight for control. But with God, that's not the case. Fighting fear and anxiety with faith and trust is not an easy battle for any of us. And we're going to watch that in him. I do still think you can't just sit back and go, oh, God's going to save me. What there's that old, there's that old joke that you've heard pastors say a million times in the hurricane and the person is on the roof and God sends the boat to get them and they don't get on and then God sends the helicopter and they don't get on and then he gets to heaven and he says, why didn't you save me? And he said, I tried three times because he sent the boat and the helicopter and whatever else he sent. But I mean, you you still have to get on the boat. There's, there's tension there. There's tension there because when we fear, we tend to go into flight or fight mode. That's just biologically what happens when you fear fight or flight. And Jacob's reaction is, is either fight or flight. Like he either flees or he fights. So he's had this vision of angels. God knows him and sends him this vision. I got this, bud. I'm surrounding you. But however, he still fears and he prepared first when he should have prayed first. So his his natural reaction was to start separating Let's his camps, figuring out his strategy. Out. And he should have prayed. He might have discovered that his strategy was unnecessary had he prayed first. 
and how much more productive might we be if we pray before we prepare? And then listen to what God has for you. So to your point, preparation is a good thing. God doesn't want us to just sit around. However, we need to pray first to make sure that we're using our energy for the right kind of preparation and not um, doing exactly what God already did because we don't want to waste our time doing what God already did. We need to waste, we need to use our time for other things. Oh, and how many times does that happen that you just take action and then you're like, oh, wait, I should have prayed about that before I did that. So it's interesting. Verse nine, what does it say there? Then Then, Jacob prayed, oh, God of my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I've become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. There is this method of prayer called Acts. And if you're not familiar with it, it's A-C-T-S, Acts. And it's this is a great example of the Acts kind of prayer. And it starts with the A is for adoration or praise. And it's really who God is and their relationship. So you, I would tell my kids all the time when we would pray like this, I'd say, start your prayer. Let's all list something. God, you are. God, you are holy. God, you are wise. God, you are the beginning and the end. God, you can look at the Psalms and there's a million ways you can praise the Lord. So Jacob, does that here. He says, Oh God, my father, Abraham, God of my father, Isaac, you who said to me, he's praising God. He's starting with adoration. Then he goes into confession, which is again, this whole method of prayer acts is to really put God in a position of who he is and you in a position of who you are so that you can pray from a pure heart. And he does that next by confession. That's the C. I am unworthy of all kindness and faithfulness you have shown me. So here you are, God, you're awesome. And I am unworthy. Well, and the Bible also says that if you have unconfessed sin, God literally cannot hear your prayers. Until you say this. So then he goes into thanks. That's the T. Kindness, faithfulness, God has shown. And he says next, um, kindness and faithfulness, you have shown me. Now I've become two camps. He's listing these great things God has done for him. The last part is S of Acts is S, S, supplication. Save me and my family from my brother. So supplication is that um, where you're actually asking God what you want him to do. So first you adore him. God, you are this. You confess, God, I am sorry for this. You thanks. Thank you, God, for doing this. And then you supplicate, God, please will you and whatever your prayer request is. He adds a bonus. He adds the promise with confidence. This is a promise you gave to me, God. I'm going to remember the promises of God. This is a great system of prayer and a great positioning of your heart to get ready to ask God four things in your life instead of just starting out with, God, will you give my child better grades? God, you know, (laughs) those things, it kind of sets up a right, a better position. So great example from Jacob. Continuing on in verse 13, he spent the night there and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. 
He instructed the one in the lead, When my brother Esau meets you and asks, Who do you belong to and where are you going? And who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, They belong to your servant Jacob. They're a gift sent to my lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us, for he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later, when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So, Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. I think this is kind of funny because, again, Jacob is relying on himself to pacify Esau. If Esau hasn't come to peace with this in the 20 years he's been gone, pacifying him with a few heard is not going to do it. But Jacob is a remarkable strategist. A good strategy can make for a brilliant leader if they remember to put God in first. He didn't quite do that. He put he him still, in second, but still. It's he's, still trying to, he's still trying to think, I'll pacify him. Like, okay, 20 years has gone by. That, that was God's job. Jacob's three-point strategy includes a route of escape. Again, Jacob, the controller strategist, taking care of Jacob. Prayer, Jacob asking God to take care of Jacob. And gifts, Jacob atoning for his past mistakes with Esau. It's it's a strategy. He's like trying to cover all his bases. I don't necessarily agree with the strategy Um, instead of just kind of relying on God. It's a little little transparent from Esau's perspective. I would have been kind of being like, okay, you've been gone for 20 years and now you're just going to offer me a a bunch of stuff that's not going to make it right you know well it's a good point for anybody dealing with change because it's you don't know what's up ahead and you can sit there and try to figure out and try to think 10 steps ahead but if you just will pray and listen to what god says which means you've gotten into his word Mm -hmm. and then listen to what he's telling you through his word he will speak to you that way Mm -hmm. well jacob has done all he can think to do to protect his family from his brother. And then Jacob wrestles with God. Verse 22. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Okay, it says a man, but the man is an angel. And Hosea 12, 3, 5 describes the angel as the angel or God. Speaking of Jacob, this is what Hosea says. In the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. As a man, he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him. He wept and begged for his favor. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. So this man that he is wrestling with is God. It is an angel from God. It is God. And why is Jacob wrestling God? Well, like I said, Jacob has done all he can think to do, but that's him thinking. Verse 25, when the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched and as he wrestled with the man. Okay, so this sounds a little odd because when the man, let's say God, saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. So in actuality, physically, God did overpower Jacob. God can overpower Jacob and does so. So what does that mean when it says that 
that the man could not overpower him. The reference is not to Jacob physically. The reference is to Jacob's unwillingness to yield spiritually. Jacob must learn to give up control and trust God. God can overpower him physically, but God's not going to force him to trust him. That's the whole point of us having faith is that we have to learn to trust God. The significance of the socket is this. The thigh is the pillar of a man's strength and its joint with the hip is the center of physical force for a wrestler. If the thigh bone is thrown out of joint, the wrestler is utterly disabled. Jacob now finds that this mysterious wrestler has wrested from him by one touch all his might and he can no longer even stand alone without any support, whatever, from himself. He hangs upon the conqueror and in that condition learns by experience the practice of soul reliance on one mightier than himself. All that strategy, even to protect himself from Esau, was Jacob relying on Jacob. He has to learn to cling to the Lord. And that's what this kind of imagery is all about. And to your point earlier, this is where wisdom happens. This is where the experiences that you have teach you that you can rely on God instead of relying on yourself. Jacob's gift of perseverance and persistence was also holding him back from trusting God. Because he just thinks he can make things happen. He can make it happen. I am so creative. I am a great strategist. I will make it happen. I will protect my family. I will make money. I will increase my herds. I can do it all myself. Oh gosh, I identify with that so much. (laughs) And I think a lot of people in modern America do. Yeah. Oh, totally. Just do it. Nike. We're going to make it happen. Yeah. It's the American way. All right. Let's continue on. Verse 26. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Okay, so the man, God says, let me go for his daybreak. And Jacob replies, I won't let you go unless you bless me. So Jacob realizes, oh my gosh, this is the Lord. And he has just literally made me a lame. And I don't care about that. I have got to have his blessing before I face Esau, before I become a patriarch, before I carry on and become a great nation. I get it. I have got to have the Lord's blessing. I can't do this on my own. But do you think it's a little bit of arrogance on his part that he's like, well, I'm not going to let you go until you do this one thing for me. But this is one thing that God loves about Jacob is that he wants it. Oh, that he's seeking after him? That's why he chose him over Esau Mm. because Esau just sells it. He doesn't want it. But Jacob is willing to wrestle with anyone to get it. And he realizes I can't wrestle with God. And so now he's finally at the point where he's just, he can't even stand up. He's hanging on God and God is saying, it's daybreak, I gotta go. And he's like, no, no, you can't leave me. I've got to face Esau. I've got to become this great nation. You, I am not gonna let you go until you bless me. And he is clinging to God now instead of trying to figure out how he can do it on his own. He's finally reached that point where he's clinging to God and saying, you give it to me because I'm not gonna be able to strategize my way out of this. Yeah, and how many times has that happened to us where we get into a situation where we're in a little over our heads or it's something that we can't get ourselves out of and then we finally turn to God. How much different could it be if we we turned to him first? 
What is that thing in your life right now that you just need to give it up and turn to God instead of trying to do it yourself? Yeah. Think through that and really, really try to come to terms with how can you just trust God in that situation and stop trying to change something because it is his promise and he will fulfill it in you if you just trust him. This is Jacob's turning point. This is the beginning of his journey as a patriarch. In the end, it is by yielding to God that Jacob wins the struggle. Here come the patriarchs. Yeah, here he comes. And like you said, it's the same for us. By yielding to God's will, we too win the struggle for eternal life. Because until we come to faith in Christ, and we until we yield, we don't win either. Verse 27, the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. So Peniel means face of God. Jacob is confirming that he has wrestled with God. And I do think it's funny that he wants to, he's again trying to control. So uh, uh, tell me your name. And God just goes, why do you ask? Mm -hmm. Just stop, stop questioning. (laughs) Jacob has changed. He is now Israel. He gets a new name. The old Jacob relied on his own resources and shrewd schemes to get what he wants. The new Jacob, now called Israel, has learned he must rely on God and submit to his way. The old Jacob covertly stole the blessing from Isaac, saying he was Esau. The new Jacob honestly demands the blessing from God using his own name. I am Jacob. You cannot leave till you bless me. He's not scheming anymore. He's being transparent. He's being honest. God marks this change with a name change and the transfer of the blessing from Isaac to Jacob. Jacob's name has embodied his character. He was Jacob, the shameful supplanter. Remember, that's what Jacob means, supplanter. By changing his name, God is acknowledging that Jacob's character has changed. Finally, Israel means he struggles with God and prevails. Jacob cared enough to struggle, and that is the character trait that finally saves the day. He struggled with his sinful sinful scheming, controlling nature because he loved God. God honors Jacob's determination and passes Abraham's blessing on to him. And this isn't the first time that God changes someone's name, nor will it be the last. Right. So there's a lot of symbolism in that. A blessing from God cannot be stolen. He gives it freely. We cannot earn it. And the best we can do is to try to deserve it. And Jacob struggled until God felt he deserved it. And that was great perseverance on his part. And blessing, again, is different than that birthright that he bartered for Correct. back then. Correct. Blessing That's is all very about different. The money. Right. All right. Continuing on in verse 31. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. All right. I love this little contrast here. There's a contrast between Abraham's interactions with God and Jacob's interactions with God. Remember, Abraham questioned. Jacob wrestled. It's different. It's a different reaction to the same problem, a lack of trust in God. Abraham was questioning because he wanted to understand. And over time, he learned not to question. Remember, like in the scene where God asked Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham did not question anymore. He had learned that God 
God knows what's best and just, he needed to just trust him. And God was always just kind of indulging him too. He was like, okay, yeah, he kept answering 50, then I won't. Jacob's different. He doesn't question. He wrestles for control. His industriousness has made him self-reliant. Here, like his grandfather, he learns his lesson. Stop trying to make it happen and let God control it. Let God control the outcome. The point I want to make is questioning God is not wrong if it teaches you to trust God. Just like wrestling with God is not wrong if it teaches you how to submit to God. Different personalities learn different lessons. The point is to pursue the lesson until God shows you that he is who he says he is and his promises stand and you can just let go and trust. Hard lessons, but important. So here's the question. How are you wrestling with God now? What are you fighting for control over? And what in your life are you going through? And God just wants you to submit instead of continuing to question and struggle. Like Susan said, questioning and struggling is not wrong, but it's the posture of your heart towards God as you do it. So where do you need to make that? It's just a small shift, but where do you need to do that in your life? What do you need to change today that can help you just blindly trust God instead of question? Mm. Chapter 33 is a little bit of a closure as Jacob prepares to wrestle with Esau and finds out he really doesn't have to. Chapter 33. Jacob looked up and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front, Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. Okay, note, this is just another example. We're going to get more in the future that one of Jacob's failings is favoritism. And I just think the favoritism in this female hierarchy must have been visibly painful to Leah, Bilhah, and Zilpah and their children. Children are always watching and they were put in an order. And I think it must have been especially hard for Leah because, and her sons, because she was the first wife and she had the oldest son. So rightfully she should have been last and her sons, because they were the heirs, if you went by the culture tradition of the day. So, but again, she knows she's not the favorite. She knows that he, he loves puts, Rachel he more. Puts and she Rachel always has and known Joseph that. Last. Yeah. Yeah. And how painful is that as a family? I just want everyone to like, I just, am always trying to absorb the family feeling of the day and like what was a part of their daily life. And this was a part of their daily life that there was a mix up in the hierarchy and how that must have hurt these kids because you're going to see these kids do act out in different ways. These 12 sons are going to have different problems of their own. Well, gosh, the most painful had to be those women in the front, the female, what they call servants. They were actually all for his wives, technically, right? Right. But they don't even get the courtesy of being called his wives. They were just put in the front and they're his female servants. Yeah. Yeah. I still have the most pain for Leah because- Rightfully, she was the first wife with the first sons. And in that day, their culture said that you're it, you're the queen bee kind of thing. Um, but she was also always second to this younger sister. You're right. Poor Leah. Verse four. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around him, his neck and kissed him and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and the children. Who are these with you? He asked. So this is kind of sweet to me because Jacob, having so recently given up wrestling after his thing with God, he's 
kind of moved, trying to move on and trust God, is spared wrestling with Esau. There was a terrible face-off with Laban, but there is not with Esau, which there really should have been considering how he offended Esau. God's reward is a much needed gift to Jacob. God must have been working on Esau because he too is a different man. When we left him, he was going to kill Jacob. He was wailing at, you know, what had been done to him. And now he's kind of just throws his arm around him. You can tell he's moved on. He's got his own life. He's got his own kingdom and he's happy. Well, and to your point, God tried to comfort him and sent him the camp of angels so that he would know it was going to be okay. And yet still he separated his camps. And so if we would just take those signs from God. Yeah, God knew there was no problem coming. He had already taken care of Esau. And, 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 you know, with God, nothing is impossible. Even the forgiveness of those we have wronged. And Esau is not harboring ill will anymore. Esau's a good. Jacob answered, they are children. They are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what's the meaning of all these flocks and herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, my Lord, he said. But Esau said, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob. If I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me, for to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you, for God has been gracious to me, and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted it. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, my Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the ewes and the cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the flocks and herds before me and the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that? Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkoth. All right. I don't like this scene. I'm a pleaser and I want everyone to be happy. And I kind of feel like Esau is a changed man and he's just so happy to have his brother back. And he wants them to kind of be, oh, well, let me help you. You know, I'll protect you and come with me and let's just go celebrate together. We're brothers. And I feel like Jacob is kind of pulling back. The commentaries are all over the place on this discrepancy. Jacob told Esau, I will come to you in Seir. But then it says, Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth. Did Jacob ghost Esau? Mm. Here are the possible options. And again, the commentators are all over the place. Did Jacob brush off Esau? Possible options. Yes, but not intentionally. He had to adjust his plans for some unknown reason. So maybe he really meant he would meet Esau and then something changed. Another option. Yes, intentionally he ghosted him because it's not wise to spend lots of time with ungodly influences and Esau was an ungodly influence. Another option. Did Jacob ghost Esau? No, he may have gone later or taken his family to set up house and gone by himself for a visit. Last option. Did Jacob ghost Esau? No, because our new man Israel would not do such a thing without facing another consequence from God because it would have been deception 
lying, and there is no mention of further consequence or of another rift in his relationship with Esau. So perhaps he had a change of plans and sent word to Esau. Did, did all that make sense, sense to you? Well, I mean, it just seems like there's a lot of blessing on Jacob's life because he really doesn't suffer many consequences for any of the things that he does. So whether or not- Well, he did originally, 20 years. Well, he did, yes. Yeah. But in this journey, he doesn't suffer a lot of consequences. Rachel steals the gods and there's no consequence for that. He's scheming and deceiving in, in the herds and the flocks and there's no consequence for that because there already was a plan and that was God. He, he's not facing a lot of consequences. So I can't really see how he intentionally did that and then would have had a consequence for it, even if he did. Yeah, I kind of I kind of land with um, the last one. No, he wasn't really ghosting Esau because he wouldn't do that. He, he doesn't deceive anymore. Something must have happened that we don't know about either, you know, um, he sent word, plans changed. He didn't go back. I do think God did not want them to mix up because we know that Esau's kind of gone a more, you know, pagan God way. He intermarried with other women. So it could have been a really bad influence. They can't travel together as a camp. Um, they have to be separate. Jacob is a separate nation, but there must have been something that happened so that Esau wasn't mad or hurt by it. And Jacob wasn't lying when he said, I'll meet you in Sierra. And then he doesn't show up. This is kind of the separating of their ways, but it seems like there was a reconciliation. Do you know where Esau's family then migrates to? Oh, we're going to talk about, we're going to come. We are going to deal with Esau's generation, not next chapter. I think it's the chapter one after. Well, you're going to have to listen because it's going to get good then. Exactly. (laughs) Verse 18, after Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely in the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver, he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elo, Israel. Next week, we're going to start reading about Jacob's children. And the first chapter we're going to read about is not a great story. It's actually a really hard one. It has something to do with that daughter, the only daughter named of Jacob, named Dinah. It's brutal. So get ready. What's a club without friends? If you're enjoying the Bible Book Club, why don't you share it? And then you can say, welcome Welcome to to the the club. club. New episodes drop every Monday and get all episodes now on Amazon Music. As always, head over to susanme.com slash Bible Book Club for show notes from today's episode. Bible Book Club is hosted by Susan Merrill and Heather Rubio, edited by Buck Buchanan, produced by Haley Mawatt.